welcome back to Render Unto Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. I'm your host, Josh Campbell. Render Unto Caesar seeks to explore the connection between religion and the public sphere. The title comes from one of the more well-known events in Jesus' life, when he gets asked if a devout Jew should pay taxes to Rome. Jesus says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Previously on Render Unto Caesar, I talked with Dan Schmeiser, the son of Percy Schmeiser. Percy Schmeiser was a small-town farmer in the Canadian prairies who fought a historic court battle with multinational agro-giant Monsanto. We also heard part of a conversation about the corporatization of food by Dr. Vandana Shiva. These conversations made me think a lot about the name of this show. What does it mean when Jesus tells the Pharisees to render unto Caesar? If you're like me, you may have heard sermons that describe the phrase as a didactic call to pay your taxes. In the past century, a lot of scholarship has been mounting that challenges this interpretation. This scholarship has been underlining the importance of understanding Jesus as an oppressed Jew under Roman occupation. Since the invasion of Iraq, there have been a growing number of biblical scholars who have been drawing provocative parallels between the Pax Romana and the Pax Americana. One person who understands this all too well is Stan Goff. As a soldier, Goff was an instrument of the Pax Americana, who went through a dramatic paradigm shift while on assignment in Haiti. In his years since the military, Goff has written critically on the military-industrial complex and the interests that it served. His transformation and call to discipleship will be the focus of this show. This will be part one of a three-part series. In the first part, we will hear Stan's dramatic paradigm shift during his military career. In part two, I will talk with Stan about his spiritual awakening and his take on what it means to render unto Caesar. In part three, we have a big picture conversation about what's wrong with the world and what can be done about it. Here's part one of that series. Thanks for listening. Uh, you talked about the army, um, joining the army in 1970. And uh, why did you join? Uh, I was 18 years old. I graduated high school about uh, seven months earlier. Eight months earlier, I forget. And I was just kind of bouncing around. Um, and probably headed in the wrong direction. I was hanging out with sketchy characters. You know, I was a typical sort of uh, teenager in the 60s. Um, and I think it was two things. A couple people I had known had come back from Vietnam and they were telling their little war stories. Uh, the other thing was I was raised in an extremely uh, anti-communist household, and I really did believe that, you know, there was this world communist conspiracy that was a threat to our very lives and that kind of thing. And um, my girlfriend broke up with me. So all those things came together and I joined the army. Uh, I was there about 10 minutes and said, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, and I spent the next three years wondering how to get out. Uh, but I did my did my bit in Vietnam. I came back and spent the rest of my three year hitch in uh, in Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne Division. And then I got out. It's like I was out and I was never going back again. And four and a half years later, uh, I found myself um, in a psychotic marriage with an infant to take care of, um, and I was uh, working in a piece work mill. 
uh, a sweatshop in Wilmer, Arkansas. And uh, I went down and talked to the recruiter and they said, yeah, we can't bring you back as a sergeant because I was a sergeant when I got out. But they said, um, we can bring you back in as a PFC. And by then, but when I got out in 1973, the Army had it just just imploded from Vietnam. And they had got had to get rid of the draft. Uh, by the time I left Vietnam, uh, we were shooting our own officers. It was just a mess. By the time I went back in, in 1977, they had gone through a, 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 about a five-year period where they were trying to reprofessionalize uh, and it was a volunteer army and to make that more attractive they raised the pay and the benefits to make them comparable with uh, they're not now far better than you can find uh, in sort of the counterpart civilian occupations for the same age group but yeah I, I, I went back in I immediately got a regular paycheck I immediately got free health care I immediately got an allowance for housing I immediately got an allowance for food um, and then once I got back in it every time I came up on my next enlistment I thought about getting out there would be these um, recessions again and yeah there was nothing out there and uh, you know I had I had a family I had to take care of and then about 1979, I guess, I switched over from the regular army, which I'd gone back into. I said I wasn't going back into all that airborne hoo-ha stuff and all that. But sure enough, I got bored with the stuff that I was doing, working over in a tank battalion in Fort Carson. And I went and uh, volunteered for uh, special operations to the Ranger Battalion first. I went and volunteered for that and went through Ranger School and all that. And then from then on out... The rest of the career, I was in what they call special operations, which is just uh, it's a bunch of different stuff. But it it um, it involves small units um, doing um, like special hit and run kind of missions. They're just not they're not people that they used to back in the old day throw up on the line. You know what I mean? And make them wait for years and years to do whatever they're going to do. Um, yeah, and it's See, turned out that for whatever reason, I was pretty good at it, so I got rewarded for it. I got rank ahead of my peers. Uh, then I got fed up again in 1986, seven. I got out again. I was actually, I had a nice high rank, and I was about to sit pretty and... They pissed me off, and I left again. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you did these. I came back I mean, again. So I had two breaks, and so I went up and down the rank structure. I went up to sergeant and dropped down to private, and then worked my way back up to a senior sergeant and got knocked back down to a junior sergeant, and then, yeah. So you, so, did, these, you did these missions. I mean, I have uh, Vietnam, Guatemala, Granada, El Salvador, Colombia, Peru, Somalia, and Haiti, as well as Honduras, Venezuela. And Panama. That's quite a resume. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, I guess the where I wanted to go next, uh, your your book, Hideous Dreams, subtitle is A Soldier's Memoir of the U.S. Invasion of Haiti. Yeah. Um, it's obvious that Haiti left quite an impression on you. What happened there? <laughs> oh, I just I I. 
people really have to go to Haiti to understand Haiti. Um, <laughs> I love Haiti. I went back 21 times um, after uh, I left from the from the invasion in '94. Uh, but I was already having a lot of questions before I went to Haiti about a lot of things. I was getting close to the end of my career. Um, but I had... Uh, what year, what year were you in Haiti? What year were you in Haiti? 94, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I mean, as early as back in, in the mid-80s when I was working in Salvador, Guatemala, and back in the Battle Reagan days, I... I sort of discovered by working out of embassies that because I kind of just had, a, you know, the standard old mainline narrative about democracy, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, stopping communism and all these things. And I got down to El Salvador and Guatemala, worked directly out of the embassies. And then uh, I was exposed to all the other sort of governmental machinations over there. And um, uh, what I discovered um, was that. Well, every day, everyone in the embassy uh, has some sort of an idea what the ambassador's itinerary was. And I was privy to the ambassador's itinerary because I was working with local security forces. And uh, it turns out, I always thought, you know, that the most important meetings he'd have with would be with the, the chief of state or maybe with the military group commander or... You know, but it turned out with the most important meetings the guy had was with the National Chamber of Commerce, and it was like you know, ding, I'm slow, uh, but the light finally came on. I said, "This is all about money, at some level," you know. And then I began to kind of question a lot of things, and that was a long, slow process. Again, while I was dealing with trying to manage a horrifically bad marriage and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but by the time I got to Haiti, I was already, I'd already begun to think of myself as a socialist. In fact, I told someone that when I was there. Um, and so, then, how did, so how did that, how, sorry to interject, uh, Stan, but how you're, I mean, you're raised in a family that communism is the devil and you're joining in, you know, the army where you're hearing that rhetoric a lot. Um, I thought that change happened to you in Haiti, but obviously there was some stuff happening already at that point. Yeah. No, Haiti just, Haiti gave me a place where I could come as close as possible to going to prison. Um, <laughs> and I almost did. Um, Haiti, I had been following Haiti from the time I went over to third special forces group. It was kind of a long story. I've been getting shuffled around because of the change in the rank and a bunch of stuff right after Somalia. I just come back from Somalia with that dreadful mission. We had turned all the shit while we were over there and then, um, came back and I had, um, people forget that when, um, when they were talking about uh, Cédras and Francois in Haiti, it was the same time that the Rwandan genocide had just happened. <clears throat> and my special forces group, every group has a particular area of operational responsibility. And ours was Sub-Saharan Africa and the Francophone Caribbean. And... Uh, so we were slated. We were actually slated to go to Rwanda. They canceled it, but because they were, they had all the camps there and the cholera had started to spread and we were going to go over there as an emergency 
and uh, then Haiti came up. Um, and, and what came up in Haiti was that Segras uh, and Francois were in danger of being toppled, and uh, the Clinton administration determined that uh, the, the best way uh, to nip that in the bud would be to take Aristide, who was a popular leader, and um, put a muzzle on him and then return him as a figurehead and kind of domesticate him. And, of course, when that didn't work, then they just staged another coup exactly like they did in 1991 when they did the one in 2004. But when I went down there, I had studied the place. I'd been studying not just the stuff that we had, but I'd been studying as much as I could because I had this feeling we were going to Haiti. In particular, my team, because our AOR, our, our uh uh, the area that we spent the most time in was the Dominican Republic, which is the same island. Um, and we had uh, a couple of very good um, French speakers. They had a bunch of Spanish speakers. We were all Spanish speakers except uh, one guy. Uh, so I kind of thought our team was going to go down there. And as I started to study what was going on, I became much more sympathetic to uh, our Steve. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And uh, I actually deluded myself, convinced myself that if we went down, because initially the mission was to go down there and throw out the coup government. They were digging their heels in and we were going to do it by force. It was the Powell mission at the last minute that switched that over. Um, I think for fear that it would unleash the power of popular forces more than what they can handle. And I think that probably was true and it would have been the best thing altogether, but uh, they didn't do that. But we actually went down there intent on a combat mission. And um, I was actually, you know, this was before I became a Christian. It was before I was decided to follow the way of nonviolence. And uh, I thought this was all the Gary good thing. You know, we're going to go put the right guy back in. He's democratically elected at 69% of the vote and all that. And uh, so I felt like we were doing a good thing. Um, but when we got down there, whatever it was that we were trying to do good got us subverted at every turn. We were basically down there just marking time as an occupying force. And meantime, uh, Almost from the time that the boots hit the ground, there were people already trying to reestablish lines of communication with the old right wing uh, groups over there, in particular, a group called FROP. Um, So acronym for a long Haitian thing that says like the, the, the Haitian front for democracy and yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, But it was, um, it was, the political administrative wing of um, of the Francois uh, Cedras group, uh, and 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 what they did was they ran right wing death squads all over the all over the country, and so I watched our people, you know, sort of lurping around and trying to set up those new lines of communication with them. And it was very apparent that, uh, yeah, we brought Aristide back on the 15th of October, uh, but they wanted to uh, make sure that he wasn't capable of doing anything at all. And then um, I started, had a lot of time. I mean, there were days where we didn't have anything to do. Uh, I had my team way, way out in the 
way, way out in Fort Liberté. It's way up in the north, all the way out on the tip of a uh, little peninsula there. And uh, we were kind of like just, we had a frat house down there, you know, we just lay around in that thing. Every so often we'd have to go put out fires um, of various kinds. But I had a lot of time to read. And um, actually, my sister sent me uh, Race Matters by Cornell West. And I had not been exposed to any kind of literature on the left up until then. I had started reading March just a year earlier, just out of curiosity. Um, and then she sent me Race Matters. And actually, that was timely because I was trying to walk a tightrope in terms of how we were dealing with the Haitians because I made it very clear to them that I was going to support the Lava Loss group in the area that we had responsibility for, which I had members of my own team that were in near open rebellion about that. And uh, watching the attitude, I had to, I ended up fighting a lot of uh, very strong racism on the team itself. You know, we had people around us who didn't have enough to eat. And I had one of my team members going out there and feeding the leftovers of his MRE to a dog right in front of people who were hungry. Um, so reading that at that particular time was very formative uh, for me. Uh, and it kind of, I'd had, I'd had, uh, I'd struggled with the issue of race ever since I was in Vietnam. Because the first thing that happened to me, and it happened within two weeks of being in Vietnam, was I turned into a rabid racist. Um, and uh, what's a rabbit? What's that? Rabid, 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 like yeah. Uh, oh, rabid racist. Okay, gotcha. Hydrophobia racist. Yeah, <clears throat> but you know, I fell right into that thing about hating all Vietnamese. Um, but. After I had time to reflect on it after that experience, I realized how easy that transformation was for me when I was in a position where I was obliged, I was duty bound to control a population that didn't want to be controlled. And so it doesn't take very long being in that role and it's being kind of a Stanford prison experiment. You end up internalizing your role and um, all these other people out here, especially whenever you, you know, you're in a situation where you have a, a insurgency, counterinsurgency, and uh, we were losing guys to booby traps and things like that. You know, you can't put a face on the enemy. You can't, uh, you can't tell friend from foe. Um, the fact is hardly any Vietnamese wanted us there except for a handful of rich people and some generals. Um, but I, I had struggled with that ever since Vietnam about how easy my own transformation into a racist had been and the circumstances that brought that about. And then, like, say, reading, uh, starting to read about race while I was in Haiti and looking at it firsthand and then having beginning to develop kind of a global perspective by having studied the history of Haiti and whatnot. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was kind of a rush from 
my whole life in the military into a new life as someone who became politically active like two years later. Um, it was less than two years later. Um, when I came back from Haiti, I, I read everything I could get my hands on from these alternative sources. I had subscriptions to like 15 magazines and, you know, I was trying to catch up. It's like, oh, this shit I didn't know. And what am I going to do to learn it? And, 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 uh, um, and I started writing about it then. And I actually, the first things I wrote that got published were, um, about Leonard Peltier and Mumiad Abu Jamal, because I didn't know about these people. I did though. I wrote those as uh, as guest editorials in the Fayetteville Observer Times while I was still on active duty, and you can imagine how that went over. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, you know, and I I got out and and uh, technically I got out in February of '96. I actually went on terminal leave in December of 1995. And uh, in that same year, I went and joined the American Communist Party, you know, uh, partly out of just a reaction, rage. But also, they were, um, they were a bunch of smart uh, people who were really nice to me. Um, they weren't anything like the caricatures, you know what I mean, that I'd heard all my life. It turned out to be some, a lot of them just, you know, they were old um, union activists and stuff like that, you know. Uh, people that, you know, you, you, you sit down and have a beer with, you know. Uh, I didn't so stay it, with them that long, but because uh, yeah. there still wasn't a great. Um, Toleration of dissenting views, and I, I make a habit of dissenting from my own views as often as possible. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and when you, uh, you know, you you made. I was. I'm curious, Stan. Is it more common than people think for U.S. soldiers to have interest in communism and kind of, you know, because there's such a. Is it is that reaction that you had? You said your kind of reaction, you know, or your movement there was reactionary. Is that is that more common? I would, than people I, not think? reaction in reactionary sense, but reaction in terms of like just kind of a rebound from uh, from everything else. And, and I never rebounded all the way back. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still count myself politically uh, on the left, uh, um, probably to the left of most people on the left in some respects. Yeah. Some respects. But, yeah, um, when you look at the military, it's a, it's a cross-section of everybody that you went to high school with. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, and you just think about those actual people and all their diversity of interests and aptitudes and so on and so forth. And that's what you get in the army. And so uh, you get that same diversity of response to the situations they encounter over the course of a, a hitch in the military or a career. And so it's kind of all over the map. But yes, there are other people. And in fact, um, um, when I when I um, began working with veterans for peace, I found a whole bunch of them, 
and that was sort of Vietnam veterans against the war and Vietnam veterans against the war uh, built veterans for peace and veterans for peace in fact I helped organize uh, on the organizational development with uh, Iraq veterans against the war so there's that kind of uh, genealogy of anti-war veterans and those guys are all very um, left adjacent it's not left um yeah, and and you see, uh, it's not common, but it's not common in the general population either. I think it's more likely to happen under certain circumstances with a military person, because especially if they're um, being pushed out a lot, because whether you like it or not, you become some kind of a political scientist. You see what I'm saying? You're... You, you're on the cutting edge of politics one way or another. When you get pushed out on a bunch of stuff, you start realizing how it corresponds to the news cycle and all that other stuff. And then you start realizing, you know, I'm a part of something. If I want to know what I'm a part of, I'm going to have to start thinking more about it. Uh, yeah, about that. Friends in the military. I mean, I really didn't, I didn't stay close to a lot of people that I left the military with because the last few months I was there, I was basically going I was trying to hide from people as much as possible because I was uh, in, in potentially facing a court martial uh, for some stuff that happened in Haiti, of course. Um, the book you can read all you can read all the drama in the book if you can find a copy. Right, I think it's right now. Uh, was the was the court martial having to do with kind of your your change in worldview and the word they used was beliefs in the mission? Yeah, the word yeah. they used was sedition. Uh, and the word I used was blackmail. Uh, I said, you, you know, you can prosecute me on some bullshit like this if you want. I mean, this is really, this is where I was because they were about, I was a year away from my pension and they were about to take it away from me. I said, you know, if you're going to, because they really didn't have anything concrete on me besides some stuff like drinking beer and whatnot. The, the other stuff was all just, you know what I mean? Just chatter um, and rumors and all that stuff. And then they questioned some of my actions, but I was able to justify pretty much most of my actions while we were there because we didn't do anything that was bad. We restored water to the place and rebuilt the basketball court and ran the thugs out of town. And other than that, we didn't do a whole lot. Um, but it wasn't anything that they could, you know, what they, they, um, I, I had to remind them that I had watched plenty of violations of General Order 1 and several other general orders while I was over there, some by general officers, and that if we were going to, you know, turn this into this, you know, this kill Stanley thing, then uh, uh, I was going to mud wrestle and take everybody down with me. They called me in the next day after I said that and said, you can go ahead and put in your time of paperwork. It was like, okay. Hello, folks, and thank you for listening to Render Unto Caesar on 91.3 FM CJTR Community Radio. I'm your host, Josh Campbell. Render Unto Caesar seeks to explore the connection between religion and the public sphere. If you're just joining us now, I'm chatting with former Special Forces soldier Stan Goff about a paradigm shift he went through during his time in the U.S. military. While Stan participated in many different operations throughout his career, it was his stint in Haiti in the 90s that really changed him. In the second half of this show, I asked Stan to compare the military-industrial complex of the United States with that of the Roman Empire. 
This will help set up our next conversation, which looks at the interplay between religion, nationalism, and the military. Thanks for listening. I'm curious, what do you think happened after 9-11 in terms of, uh, like, I guess where I'm going with this, in the in the conclusion to my last show, I, I drew some comparisons between the Pax Romana and the Pax Americana. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, uh, my question is, uh, you really, you experienced, uh, I guess in a sense, being an instrument of that Pax Americana. Um, yeah. and did that, did you see that ramp up after nine 11? Was it, was that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's surprising to me because that feels like yesterday that I know so many people now who weren't born when that happened. Um, and yet it's shaped, everything that we see around us right now and we've been at war every day since then there are people who have born and grown and gone to college now who've never not known a day they've never not known did I say that right a day uh, in which we're not at war uh, now I think we're going to see 9-11-2 right now I think we're seeing that right now. It's, it's much more toned down because you don't have that kind of consensus. After after 9-11, there was a period of time when you couldn't find one out of 100 people who didn't think we should go drop bombs on some Arabs. Um, but now over time, you know, that eroded. But... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's 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 shaped everything, and it, it, what a lot of people don't realize is the Bush administration used it to um, to reshape uh, law and international law. This is why this Patriot Act is so dangerous. One of the things they did, you know, the Pax Americana. Uh, do you think Stan? Before, before you go on, do you think that Pax Americana is that an appropriate term to use for soldiers? Uh, as instruments of such a idea, or, I mean, how would you define that? <laughs> I think it would be a useful teaching tool for soldiers. Uh, but I think soldiers themselves would probably be pretty skeptical of it. Um, then again, I, again, I can't speak for all soldiers, uh, but that what 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 it did do, and this is something that people don't realize. That's very important to understand right now, especially after this little putsch attempt at the at the Capitol the other day, and then talking about coming up with domestic terrorism laws. What happened prior to 9/11? The law of land warfare and the Geneva Conventions dictated that there were only limited battle spaces where people were actively in combat. Both recognized armed forces were in active combat with one another that you could suspend civil law and suspend the standards of civil law. <clears throat> that's, and that's the battlefield exception. With the global war on terror, they came up with a conceptual form of leisure domain because the global war on terror the entire globe becomes the battle space and so they can potentially suspend civil law 
anywhere in the world as long as it's part of the war on terror. Now they're talking about a domestic war on terror bill. And again, what that means is they're saying they can apply battlefield rules anywhere they want to just by declaring it terrorist. And it's not, we have we have sufficient laws right now to prosecute every one of those jackasses that went up there and started tearing things up. We have all we need to do that right now. But this is the neoconservative administration coming in right now. This is Bush three. There's Bush. There's Obama. Now there's Bush three. Obama was Bush two. There's Bush three. And they're going. That's exactly what they're trying to do right now. They're using this as a pretext. Uh, to strengthen domestic terrorism laws. And what a lot of people on the liberal to left end of the spectrum who might be cheering us on right now, because it's scary watching these uh, nitwits with guns, you know what I mean, just crash into the Capitol and all that. Uh, and I wrote a little piece about it. It says, you know, yeah, the five minutes of watching that loop of those guys breaking the window, I was ready to call in airstrikes myself. But we have to put that back on the back burner and think, you know, because this has already passed. And if they pass this domestic terrorism law, it's going to be used against the left a lot more vigorously than it gets used against the right. And that based on, I can't prove that because it hadn't happened yet, but just based on the past, I'd say it's a pretty yeah. good, pretty good bet. Yeah. I'm just going to back up Stan to, you know, that comparison I drew between the Pax Romana and the Pax Americana. Um, do you think that is a fair comparison? And or what's your kind of your understanding of that? I haven't really defined that for my audience. So I was wondering if you would take a stab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, it's, it's, it's the piece of a firm hand. Uh, it's the piece of everybody being, yeah, it, um, it's a, uh, it's the piece that comes from order. Uh, you know, but the, the problem with it is that the order comes, um, the, the order uh, trumps everything else at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I say, I'm not, I'm not the, the brightest bulb in the house this time of day, but you know, my idea of Pax, the Pax Romana or Pax Americana is, yeah, that's it. And I can say, I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good tool. Conceptual tool uh, for orienting people to the way that American war propaganda works. So you um, think you think that it's fair to draw those connections between the Roman imperial absolutely. complex and the American yeah. imperial yeah. complex? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you can you can describe. I mean, it takes it takes several degrees of abstraction to do it, but you can describe every imperial enterprise in essentially the same way. <clears throat> and that is you have a core, which is kind of world systems theory, but you have a core, and in that core you have a popular base sufficient to ensure the stability of a regime. And then you feed into that core from peripheries. And so you go out and you conquer peripheries and you make them a little less than and through unequal exchange and a bunch of other mechanisms. But any any core that begins to draw in 
goods and order from the outside by force is that that's essentially the dynamic of imperialism. Um, and the dynamic works the same way every time. You exhaust what you've taken away, and then you have to go further out. And you exhaust more until it's taken away, and then you have to move further out. I mean, this is a spatial metaphor, but you see what I'm saying. And eventually, um, you get yourself spread so thin that you can no longer support it. That's kind of where the U.S. is right now. And what, what the U.S. Are right now? They've got themselves spread very thin, and now you're seeing we're, we're beginning to have a lot of social disintegration in the core. And to the right. point where we just went through a, a like a tectonic political crisis. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's kind of where we are. And I think that's comparable to Rome as well. But it's more comparable to the Rome of uh, 400 right. as opposed to the first century. You know what I mean? What, what do you think is the price that uh, soldiers... You know, the, the people who are on the front lines of implementing the, those kind of uh, that Pax Americana, Pax Romana, what's the price that they pay to to implement those ideologies? And in, in, you know, that, that whole idea you talked about of drawing from the periphery into the core as imperial, you need to have instruments that actually help to to deliver that, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and to some degree... Yeah, yeah. To some degree, you know, the colonial surrogates and all that stuff. You know, it becomes a mechanism. Yeah. So, to some degree, both in Rome, in Rome, you know, it was the the military, it was the army that was helping establish that order. What's what's as someone who has been a a part of that? What's the price that people pay for being? A part of that, you know. I mean, it's not just affecting those people. Yeah. Your it depends on where you're it depends going, on which right? people. I, I, I there's something else that I wrote here just a little while back on my medium page about the military. People should read that when they think about the military because the majority the majority of the military is not the frontline soldiers. It, it's called a tooth to tail ratio. There's about one tooth for every ten parts tail. Um, because it takes a lot of support, you know what I mean, to get people. You gotta push these bodies out there, and uh, and then sustain them with all the stuff that they need. Um, but but for the for people, this is the reason that I talking. I'll get back to this about what what's the cost and kind of where I'm headed. But um, I I I have this debate with. People on the left sometimes, people are maybe on the ultra left sometimes, and men in particular because they all nurse these martial fantasies um, about, you know, I can't support nonviolence because I can't support nonviolence because, yeah, and everybody's got, you know, their little scenario they set up where uh, anybody who chooses the nonviolent alternative is a low down dirty dog. You know, like your wife be raped and all. You know what I mean? So, but what they what they don't say is what are they asking somebody else to do? Because it's not them that's going to do it when they talk about war. They're asking somebody else to do it. And you know, one of the things they always because soldiers have and and veterans have been um, turned into religious icons instead of human beings. We all talk about PTSD like it's this rite of passage and all this. It's not PTSD. It's not, it's not the central problem. Not that many soldiers suffer from PTSD. 
frontline soldiers, special operations, so very few of them suffer from PTSD. Uh, but what what I'm more concerned about that happens to them is what happens to someone when they're asked to kill? What happens to them when they do? What happens to them when they get used to it? That's that's the moral hazard. And and what it takes something away from a human being that you can never get back. And you lose a part of yourself in the process. And when we talk about, you know, we want people to go out there and fight, whether it's for the nation or the revolution or for whatever other reason, um, people don't realize what they're saying. They're saying it's okay for you to go out there. and It is not okay for you to go out there and kill somebody. It's not okay. And you're never going to be the same after that. And that person whose life you took, they're never coming back. Um, that's the hazard. It's not, oh my God, I saw guts and I'm scared and I'm going to have nightmares and all that stuff. That's not what happens to people. I'm not downplaying PTSD. I've been treated for it myself. Um, but I'm saying it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a name we gave to a constellation of things that are actually fairly normal reactions to any kind of uh, situation. Like uh, the, uh, uh, trauma is the feeling that the world isn't safe anymore. Well, the world's not safe. So I guess trauma just means realism. Uh, but yeah, my, what, what I never hear anyone talk about is what happens to a person when you oblige them to take a human life? You know, now, I understand. Now, it's also they, there's a real question about what happens, what happens to a person when you oblige them to lose their life. Of course, we know what happens. They'll be lionized uh, or, or whatever. Um, but but we don't we don't talk about what happens uh, to that person who takes you seriously and follows through uh, out of a sense of profound commitment. Yeah. What would you say? You know the second it happens that you offended God. You know it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Um, so you mentioned these groups uh, like Vietnam Veterans Against the War, Veterans for Peace, uh, Iraq Veterans Against the War. Um, what, what were, what do you think, I mean, what, you could probably speak to your motives, but what were people's motives for joining these types of organizations, generally speaking? Well, the first reason is the same as joining any organization. You want to be around like-minded people, you know, or you want to share experience. Um, um, DFP, <laughs> DFP was like a cross between, uh, <laughs> I guess all of them are they, they, they're cross between a uh, uh, a meeting of socialist workers party and 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 Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it's like uh, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that involves like personal sharing and helping each other out and leaning on each other and all that stuff. And then there's uh, ever so often you get little explosions of political controversy around a particular question and all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, the reason for joining are, are ideological for some people, um, ideological and personal for more people. Um, 
And like I say, it's just nice to, to be able to talk about this stuff with other people. And it's nice when you got – one thing I enjoyed when I was working with Veterans for Peace um, back when we were still against the war in Iraq um, was um, being an elder. Um, we had all these younger folks coming in. Um, and uh, it wasn't so much that – I had to rely on them anymore. They just needed somebody who could hear them. You know what I mean? And that was, that was, um, yeah, I think a bunch of us got to be like dads and moms about that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, Stan, I just am curious. I wanted to move on to, uh, uh, you mentioned about Pat Tillman, and this was kind of an interesting thing for me. Um, I I, I taught a, a class of a group of boys physical education in, uh, years ago, and I remember that article. Uh, you know, there's an article in Sports Illustrated about Pat Tillman, and um, I. Uh, yeah, I I wanted to touch a bit on that and then just get your thoughts because I could tell from your bio you've had some pretty close contact with that situation. So I still correspond with his mom sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so these are a couple of quotes from that article, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. And and um, but uh, this is stuff I would put on my students' assignment. I'd have them answer some questions. But Pat would lie in bed on the eve of games and picture things that no teammate did. He'd envision the American flag and the blood that had been spilled for it and other words that football players didn't, shouldn't, just hours before entering into battle. The more, there's more to life than football, he'd say. I want to contribute to society and help people. After 9-11, Pat watched the planes crash into World Trade Centers in New York City. The next day, Pat's interview with the NFL, he said, I play football and it just seems so goddamn it's unimportant compared to everything that's taken place. We're worthless. We're just actors, he muttered as he watched the events on a locker room TV that morning. Sure. So uh, my question is, uh, I mean, and I know you'll talk a bit about how you know the family and stuff, but... Um, this article makes it sound like Tillman was tired of being an actor and that he wanted to contribute to society and help people. Right. Do you think that, do you think that the army is just an, is this a place to do it or is it just another acting stage? No, I, won't, I won't recommend the army as a place to contribute to society. <laughs> yeah. I understand why people go there. Yeah. Given what he knew and how he understood the world, he was being very sincere and he was being courageous and he was being principled. Man gave a $4 million contract. Join the army as a as a as a as a PFC. So um, you know, uh, I, I gave him his shot. He was given his frame of reference. He was doing the right thing. He was he was behaving in a virtuous way, a principled way. Um, now he himself began to question a lot of things, uh, but Iraq in particular. Oh, he he. He'd been over there about three months. I think he, he said, this is, this is everything we're doing here. And this is a quote. He said, this is so fucking illegal. Everything he saw. So his principles were still there with him when he got over there. And he at least had an, a, 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 enough principles to recognize that he may have misinterpreted the situation. And, and I mean, that's, that's what I'll give him. And that was, that's kind of 
um, he got that from his mom. His mom's that way too. That's why she's such a hardhead in dealing with the military and wouldn't let go of him once she got a hold of him. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Just a final question on that, Stan. Um, the whole, I mean, uh, Pat had the journalist wrote that you know he wanted. There's more to life in football. I want to contribute to society and help people. And you told me, you know, his was a very virtuous intent, um, but definitely. The army isn't the place where you can help contribute no, no, to no, society. No. Help. Why? Why do you think? Why do you think there's good people that are misled in that way? <laughs> uh, propaganda from birth. I mean, have you ever? I mean, where do people get most of their information? Now they get it through a data stream of some kind, whether it's television or a computer or a phone or something. They they get it through these these AV hallucinations that we throw at them all day long. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're hammered with militarism, uh, you know, militarism, patriotism, nationalism from birth. It's hard not to. And, uh, you know, we, we don't live in a world of, you know, every boy being his dad's apprentice kind of thing anymore. So, uh, the general cultural one is where it's, it's very conformist now because we all kind of watch the same things. We have the same role models. Uh, and those role models for boys in particular, um, more so for girls now, which is unfortunate. Um, but, but um, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense because we believe the world works in this particular way. And the fact that it doesn't very seldom penetrates unless there's um, some sort of trauma or some sort of an experience that um, throws those errors into bold relief so that you can realize, hey, and, and nobody wants to, I don't know, it's, I, I'm, not, I'm not stating this very well, but it's very difficult to let go of one's worldview. Because without it, uh, you're in the abyss. I mean, you really are sort of at loose ends. Um, and the truth is that the military, if you if you sort of just put the mission of the military off on the side, um, it really is a, for the most part, a rule-bound culture. So it's predictable. Um, it's the most thoroughly socialist organization in the United States. Um, <laughs> the day you go in, you've got free, you know, you've got everything's taken care of. Um, and you can stay in if you, if you can, if you can stand up for 20 years and you get a pension, you get 50% of your base pay for the rest of your life. And yeah, it's nothing to seize that. Um, I've used that pension to fight militarism to some extent, but <laughs> even still, um, it's, it's, it, it, it's important. And um, it'd be easy for someone like me to kind of sit off on the sidelines and say, well, yeah, you shouldn't go in the military. I told my own kids that, and I still got one kid in the military. Um, but I'm not the one that's having to go to the job at Walmart every day. You know, I'm not the one that's trying to take care of that infant anymore. So uh, <clears throat> we all make our accommodations. Um, 
And I think that's true. I mean, if you think about it, the kid working at Walmart is contributing to the military industrial complex every bit as much as the soldier in the military because it's all of a piece. Um, you know, you just start with the fact that we've got uh, seven naval strike groups patrolling the ocean all over the world to ensure the flow of oil. Just start there. I mean, we're all the beneficiaries of that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's and, and um, there are ideas in the military that I would like to see transferred out of that milieu and into the general society. And these are very Aristotelian ideas, you know, just ideas about the common good and about how, uh, how how virtue relates to things like reason and justice and all these other things. We don't have those kind of concepts anymore, you know. We're in this postmodern miasma right now and uh, uh, people crave that so they, they they do find that in the military and they do find that effort gets rewarded and things like that and they also find that it's a place where even if you don't know jack shit about the world you can come in at 18 years old you know what I'm saying and um, you got a job Within two months, you speak the language. You can march like everybody else. You know what I mean. You get your check, you, and and when when you go back out into society, you've got respect. That wraps up another edition of Render Unto Caesar on ninety-one point three FM CJTR Community Radio. Please join us next time as I continue my conversation with Stan Goff about the relationship between religion, politics, and the military. I end today's show with a little snippet of what we'll be talking about next time on Render Unto Caesar. A couple of years ago, I watched a, a Bill Moyers special on God and politics, and it was juxtaposing uh, a type of Christianity that was being promulgated. I mean, this is how it was framed in the movie, yeah. being promulgated by the United States and Honduras, which was very much evangelical conservative. I think they even invited Pat Robertson to come to the country and it was juxtaposed with the the Catholicism in Nicaragua, which was quite liberation theology infused. And at some point they even, I mean, I'm a Catholic and it blew me away. They, they had a video of a mass and just how the, even the liturgy referred to Jesus, the worker. And I was like, Whoa, like this is not, like a massive scene. So I was, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I think you've been kind of hinting at it, but just the, the type of Christianity that existed in communist countries versus the ones that the U S was, was had, you know, more influence in, in Honduras, for example. Yeah. Evangelicals have made a lot of inroads into Latin America. Um, they're, they're appealing to something that people need. Um, and and um, their very eschatological take on things is something that's very appealing to people who are in desperate straits. Uh, and I mean, you know, once upon a time, Pentecostals were pacifists. Mm. <clears throat> uh, Seventh Day Adventists are still pacifists. You can join the army if you're a Seventh Day Adventist, but you can't carry a gun. You got to work as a medic, that kind of thing. I don't know if that's still the way the rule, but that's what it was <clears throat> when when I was in the in the military. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, 
Latin America is an interesting place. When I was with my wife and I, um, we went lived in Costa Rica for a year before we moved up to um, to Michigan, uh, and we took a day trip. Well, we actually took a three, four day trip up to Nicaragua, and yeah, they had posters that said uh, uh, Christianity and socialism. <laughs> or Christian socialism all over the place. And they'd have a picture of Jesus, and then they'd have a picture of uh, one of their Sandinista heroes, and they'd have Sandino over there, you know what I mean? 